Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What really landed in Rendlesham Forest in England in 1980? Why have some of the principal witnesses changed their stories over the years? Did American military personnel really see alien entities? Hello and welcome to the 994th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WON, AM, and FM radio uh, here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live uh, on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben and that was Paul and today we bring you a well-known guest with a new take on an old subject. You can join us from uh, anywhere. You can call us 401-766-1240 or email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, actually, the email is uh, still having a problem. So do I not c- do that. <laughs> I can get it in my lair at home, but I can't... Uh None of the devices we have here in the studio will pick it up. Well, when in doubt, there's We're always working. Facebook Messenger. Yes, definitely. So anyway, uh, Ben is working diligently to connect with our overseas guest. Mm, wouldn't Ooh, be live radio without a little bit of with a little bit of well, a little uh, bit of drama, drama right. folks. Uh, retired British police detective and Royal Air Force veteran Gary Hasseltine is vice president of the International Coalition. For Extraterrestrial Research, or ICER, uh, composed of scientists, academics, and leading UFO UAP researchers worldwide. <clears throat> Using skills learned as a police officer, Gary has examined cases with the best evidence, often corroborated by technology. In 2002, he founded the database Police Reporting UFO Sightings, or PRUFOS, P-R-U-F-O-S, uh, that's available online. At the citizens' hearings on UFO disclosure in uh, Washington, D.C., Gary has testified on behalf of police officers worldwide who are UFO witnesses. He is founder and editor of the monthly magazine UFO Truth, uh, to which I have uh, contributed a modest article previously. Gary's new book, Non-Human, the Rendlesham Forest Incident's 42 Years of Denial is the result of a five-year-plus reinvestigation of Britain's most famous UFO event. Gary participated in our own lengthy series of CBS radio specials on the Rendlesham case in 2010 and 2011. Today marks his ninth appearance on Behind the Paranormal. We hope they can uh, connect with him here. Uh, his website, ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. All right, so as we wait for uh, Gary to join us, he's never failed to do so yet. Sure thing. And um, I can uh, begin with the subject of Rendlesham Forest. Uh, for three, some people say four Nights and Gary will go into this uh, more fully in 19, December of 1980. Uh, <clears throat> U.S. Air Force personnel witnessed strange lights in the sky, uh, supposedly craft landing, and um, by some reports, uh, alien entities <clears throat> coming from those craft. Now, Rendlesham Forest, one of our flap areas that Ben and I investigate. Uh, though we haven't been there since 2012, uh, 
is a uh, it isn't all that big really there is a it's a forested area that's now what we in America would call open space land it's public land people can go and uh hike and take walks and walk their dogs etc as a matter of fact uh, the main trail is called the UFO trail because of the famous case that took place there uh, in 1980, it was straddled by two uh, NATO air bases, uh, Bentwaters, RAF Bentwaters, and RAF Woodbridge. Now, RAF Woodbridge, as I understand it, is still open as a um, helicopter base for the British military. And uh, Bentwaters, <coughs> I, I might have it reversed. Anyway, one of them is open, and the other is... Um, has been the kind of, oh no, wait, wait a minute, I'm, I think one of them is in the industrial park. Anyway, uh, one of them is closed, uh, supposedly, and um, we were there again uh, some uh, years ago in 2012. Now, the uh, we, we often have uh, Steve LaPlume, who um, is a, an official co-host of the show here, uh, who... Okay. I'm just using your face to unlock the phone. Oh, okay. Thank yeah, you. I think you have to do that. Okay. Yeah, Ben is uh, frantically uh, communicating with Gary over Facebook Messenger. Uh, but in any case, um, the uh, quite a few personnel were involved uh, in seeing these things. Uh, lights were seen in the sky, as I say. Uh, one of the most famous incidents was uh, the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, who also participated in our um, special series in uh, 2010 and 2011. And, oh, there he is. There we are. We did it. Look at that. The beauties of technology, my iPhone. Has, and, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi, Gary. Yeah, we introduced you already, and you had our blood pressure going there. So uh, we'll, um, I was starting to explain the Rendlesham case, but I'm going to turn that over to you. Okay. So we, okay. we got as far as Colonel Halt's tape. Oh, there's, uh, there's so much more that we're going to talk oh, about. Oh, there is. Well, go for it. The floor is yours. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I appreciate that it's not uh, maybe the betest, best quality, but that's my iPhone, so oh, it's you're better fine. than um, Right. Um, my book, Non-Human, is really the, the result of five years' reinvestigation of the whole case. Um, I've been doing research on the case since, public research since 2007, uh, and it was only when I was asked to take part in a documentary uh, six years ago that I began to think about it, uh, and I thought, well, if I'm going to get involved, it needs to be accurate. So I then decided to do what can only be described as a deep dive into Rendlesham Forest. And the uh, beauty of that was that uh, I just never realized how much information there was. And then how do you, I'll, I'll put it into a book and, you know, kind of formatted it. There's so much information, there's so much disinformation. Um, so what I decided to do was use it as like a forensic exercise. Uh, from my point of view as a former advanced interviewer, police detective, etc., uh, and basically just look for the facts and then evaluate the facts uh, that I found and then give an assessment. Uh, and that's the approach that I've 
adopted and uh, and that's what I've done and 500 pages is the book and uh, it's been out now seven or eight weeks now on Amazon I released it with no pre-publicity whatsoever and that was deliberate because I wanted to get the truth out there and what I mean by that is I wanted to get the information out there uh, and once the genie is out the bottle it's hard to put back in the bottle and there's so many agendas I think that are at, uh, at work with Mendelssohn over the years that I just felt that that was the best way to get the information out there and then once it's out then you can start talking about it but it's so much harder for uh, people who may wish to not want this information out there to get it out there. Now um, you start the I'm, book uh, with a general uh, accepted chronology. Can you yep. uh, start us off with that? Okay, yeah. The, prior to 2017, the existing chronology was basically that there'd been three nights of continuous UFO activity in the forest, and there were night one was the night of uh, Christmas night into Boxing Day, 25th into 26th, and that's the well-known story of Jim Pennison and John Burroughs and Ed Kabanzak, the small uh, triangular object uh, found on the ground or at or near to the ground in the small clearing in the forest. That's regarded as night one. Uh, much less was known about night two, uh, but it's generally perceived to have happened, and that was something had happened to Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin, a uh, young female black officer who was one of the shift commanders, uh, and something had really um, traumatising had happened to her, but we didn't really know what. There was no accurate information. And then the third night uh, would have been what was regarded to as what's called the Holt Night. The Holt Night uh, where Colonel Holt went out with a small team, um, five including himself, according to Holt, and uh, and he then saw, and they did multiple UFOs themselves. Uh, he took out with him a, a small dictaphone audio recording device, and he made, according to him, intermittent uh, updates, and that's what's called the Holt tape. Uh, and then after the incident, he, he was then asked to write a uh, memorandum uh, to the Ministry of Defence because it, as effectively the incidents had occurred on British soil. Uh, so he did a one-page memo which has become known for a famous document called the Holt Memorandum. And uh, basically he passed that to Squadron Leader uh, Morland who was the RAF liaison officer on the twin bases who then passed it forward up the chain to the Ministry of Defence uh, and then the Ministry of Defence basically never responded to him, according to Colonel Holt, and uh, and and basically that was it. Uh, he never got any feedback. So that was the existing chronology which begins the book, uh, and I call it the origins uh, part of the story. Um, where do you want me to go from there? Uh, well, what did you find that was wrong with that chronology? And if you could get well, into uh, I th I, the initial I, I, witness I statements as well. Which you do in the book? Yeah. Well, what did it? What didn't emerge initially were any statements, and then uh, I think it was really in the uh, James Easton got hold of the, what are regarded as the five statements that I refer to in the book. These are the existing statements, and they were apparently originally annotated 
by what is believed to be Colonel Holt, uh, and it's we think that they came from Colonel Holt. He had copies of them, and uh, I review those in the book. Now, as a former police officer, RAF police officer, detective, um, statements are quite an important thing, and and, and the long and short of it is I, I go through the statements with a fine-tooth comb, and there's a lot wrong with them. Uh, they themselves have said some of them they didn't write, which alludes to that there were other organisations, agencies involved that were wanting to put out a different story, which I, I think was the case. Uh, but basically, none of the statements are really written that well um, in terms of my kind of training. And I don't think there'll be that much difference. Uh, and uh, they're not really exhibited in the, in the right way. But what you've got to understand is that when we have procedures in, in, in kind of policing terms for just about every incident, the one area that you don't have any kind of uh, set rules is when it comes to UFOs. And it's like, when there's a UFO incident, the rules tend to go out the window, and I think that's basically what happened uh, with these statements and the fact that they weren't written properly, they were written in the right format, etc., etc. So, so that's where you are. I think, I think across the board, when you look at major UFO cases, um, rules tend to go completely out the window, and things disappear, and logs, pages of logs get uh, suddenly disappear mysteriously, ship records suddenly fly out the window into the sea and that kind of thing. So, or, or, or helicopters turn up like with the Nimitz incident and uh, the tapes kind of like get taken away by unknown persons. So when we're talking UFOs, uh, it all falls into this big, deep black hole where it's very easy for any serious researcher to, to establish that there's been a cover-up. And I think if you look at recent people like Ross Poultard, who've come to the subject only recently uh, and did a very good book once he did get into it, he, he has been amazed at just how much credible information is out there. So I think I, I think the cover-up is well-established and it's only really been held in place by the media, unfortunately, who uh, still are dragging their heels. Um, but I think that will eventually crack around them quite soon, I think. I think we're on the brink of something. Um, it might not seem it, but I think we're on the brink of something. No, I, I tend to agree. Um, I, I was reading this article, uh, and it was talking about the, uh, the the death of BuzzFeed News and how essentially that's kind of like a big sign of the times that that there's there's all these, these news, you know, legacy news and, and all these other outlets that are just kind of falling by the wayside as time goes on. And it's yeah. it's it's very it's interesting stuff because it makes you feel like we're on on the brink of something. But I want, I want to take a quick step back because my my I know we've done a, we've done a million shows in Rendlesham Forest, even been there. It's but I, I'm struggling to. Remember. You want to know about the news stuff? That's what you want to know. That's yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the so the statements themselves were they was it really long after the fact that those appeared? Because I'm trying yeah, I'm, str yeah. I'm struggling to remember how long it was after. I've got a feeling it was in the 1990s that they emerged, so oh, wow. many years afterwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, through James Easton's interviews. Um, but but basically, the statements, 
in policing terms, are very poor. They're mm. very inconsistent. They're, they're, they're not really formatted properly on the American statement forms that they should have used. Um, if, for example, if you if you do a drawing uh, or make notes on uh, on a, on, a, on a, just a scrap of paper, mm -hmm. that can still be a statement in a sense because that's the first thing that you wrote down. So that's valuable. But what you then should do is then write, rewrite the statement on the proper statement forms, and then you make that original piece of paper an exhibit. Say, for example, Gary's time would be GH1, and you'd say, on such and such a date, I wrote these notes out on a piece of paper, which I exhibit as GH1, uh, and that would be form a part of the body of the official statement, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean. Because things are formatted in, 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 in official documents because they're intended at some point, generally, to, to be presented in court. That's right. why we have documents. Right, yeah. uh, unfortunately, when we talk about UFOs, we're not going to be in a courtroom situation, but from the Air Force's point of view, they would have had official records so that if there had been a criminal aspect to anything, if it had been a murder or something within the US Air Force, they would have had procedures and paperwork that all had to be filled in properly. Well, the, the actual statements that emerged are very poor, uh, and that for me, they're not worth the paper they're written on. Mm. Uh, so so that, I wouldn't really hold too much to that. There's only one that's really uh, formatted properly, uh, which was Chandler's. Um, but again, there's lots of inconsistencies with all of them. But I... I, I I don't want to get bogged down in, in the, the statements because that's not really the big story. The big no, no, story no. Yeah. is what's emerged through my five years reinvestigation. Yeah, uh, please, and, please, and, uh, go ahead. Well, okay, let's, let's have a list. Uh, let's start chronologically. The biggest thing that I found when I did the deep dive was I went down and tried to find everything written about the case after the case. So from 19... From Jan well, literally from January 1981 onwards. And, of course, there wasn't much at first, but uh, within a few days, the likes of Brenda Butler and Dot Street were becoming aware that something had happened on the base. Later, they get involved with a famous UFO researcher in the UK called Jenna Randalls. That then leads them to go into the forest and making early indications, and, the and those early indications are all traced in the book. Mm. Well, cutting a long story short, what, what emerges in terms of what I think was quite startling information when I delved deep into this historical information, a lot of which I knew, but a lot of which I didn't know, the first thing that really hit me was that uh, I, I obtained four sources that said that Colonel Holt tried to sell his story to the News of the World before the News of the World article that came out in October 93, hmm. in 83. Right, and the four sources, basically, one of which included a, a sceptic uh, astronomer called Ian Ridpath, all confirmed that halted, uh, that Keith Beebe, the journalist behind that very famous headline, UFO lands in Suffolk, and it's official, that big article that set it around the world, which occurred on the 2nd of October 1983, actually in the run-up to that, Keith Beebe uh, did a number of lectures, and one of which was attended by Ian Ridpath, this astronomer in the UK, and he verifies it in, 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 in a message to a UFO publication and says, I was there when Keith Beebe said that he was in negotiation with Colonel Holt. Now, well, the interesting thing about this is, is Colonel Holt is he, still in the Air Force. 
this is, uh, he doesn't retire until 1991. Mm-hmm. But I have four credible sources that say he was prepared or in negotiation. And the reason it fell through is because the Holt Memorandum surfaced and the News of the World said, we can't hang on to this any longer. Holt had said to Keith Beebe, the journalist, the same journalist who did the article that spread it around the world, Keith Beebe, uh, he basically uh, said, we can't hold on to this. It's an incredible document. We've got to publish it. And he'd said, well, uh, I can't publish this material until I'm out of the Air Force. So this was like a pre uh, a pre retirement uh, deal that he was working on. I don't know for how much, but it probably would be for a lot of money. But I don't know. But the key thing is the four independent sources that say that he was prepared to sell his story, and and actually included some documents as well. Uh, Jenny Randall's the famous author and UFO researcher in the UK. Uh, in the 80s and 90s particularly, she said that Keith Beebe allowed her to view very briefly a file of the negotiated material that he uh, was preparing for that uh, sale to the newspaper. And she wasn't allowed to make any notes, but she looked at it and sees a number of things that Holt was prepared to give to the news of the world, should the story have, uh, have broken when he retired. Now, but unfortunately, now, it broke many years early. Now, you and I have both been in the military, Gary. The fact that he was still in and was going to sell huh? a story tells me that there was some authorization there. And uh, yep. umpteen interviews we've done yep. on them, I've never been able to get this out of him, um, that he was authorized to sell something. Some story yep. to the newspaper. Yeah, you don't sell government documents willy-nilly. No, no. He's absolutely. In serious he, trouble. He, he was absolutely risk talking about it. Yeah. So, but, well, but nevertheless, the four sources, had there have been just one source, had there been just two sources, I wouldn't have put it in the book. But when you had four different sources saying the same thing, yeah. and then somebody who would, would be regarded as a sceptic, Ian Ridpath, an astronomer in the UK, who's famous for putting forward the lighthouse theory. He was the person that really created the lighthouse theory that still dogs the case. Uh, so he was a sceptic, and so there was no pro-UFO bias with him. And for him to say it in a, in, in a, in a letter to, to the editor of the UFO publication, I thought that was pretty startling and, and added even extra credence to it. So that's an, a major thing. But the, one of the biggest things that I... Uh, researched and was very fortunate to get hold of was a, a, a well-known uh, UFO researcher in the in MUFON who called Ray Boucher and his then partner uh, colleague uh, Scott Colburn who sadly passed away in the last couple of years but they worked on trying to figure out Rendlesham between 1984 and 1986 and I, I did a Skype interview with Ray Boucher for the first time in 2018. And I said to him, I don't suppose you've got any of your Rendlesham notes still in. And he went, yeah, but I'm all somewhere. And I thought, well, yeah, yeah, you know, a lot of people might say that. But uh, I said, well, any chance of you having a look for them and, and seeing what you can find? And he went, yeah, I'll do that. Well, cutting a long story short, two weeks later, he then says, yeah, I found them all. Uh, and uh, I've, I've, I've kind of scanned them all and I've, I've, I've made a, 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 a PDF document and I'm sending it all to you. Well, this PDF document came and it was 345 pages of their entire 
Rendlesham Research, which was like three years' work. Wow. And anyway, I was so excited, I read it in one go, because it was old material, and, and a lot of people had never seen this. And, and anyway, when I was going through it, something actually leapt off the page that to this day is in pretty incredible, and it's, and it's the second big chronological thing to find in the old material, which is where he says that he had uh, been investigating Reynolds, he spoke to Larry Warren, he spoke to Adrian Bustinza, he spoke to another uh, members of other, milita- uh, other military witnesses, and he built up an idea of what had occurred. And he published various things in UFO journals and things like that, but it wasn't like the media now where stuff goes around and, and you get big audiences. It was a pretty small document. So anyway, when he's done this, he thinks what, what his motivation is that uh, Scott Colburn and Ray Boucher lived in the state of Nebraska. And uh, because it, the Rendlesham case involved American servicemen, and uh, he was very interested in UFOs, he thought that his senator, Senator James Exxon, should be interested because Exxon was a long-time senator and on the Armed Services Committee. And he basically approached Exxon and said, look, you know, are you aware of this case that's happened in the UK? And I think at first Exxon was like, no, I'm not really interested. Uh, And he said, well, if I get you more information, more credence, you know, will will you look into it? Because it's involved in American servicemen. And eventually Exxon was intrigued enough to meet with them and they gave him copies of the Holt Memorandum and the tape, etc. So he got kind of interested. Well, he still wanted a bit more. So Ray Boucher decided to ring Colonel Holt. This is um, in 1985. All right, so he rings Colonel Holt out of the blue. And uh, he says, I'm Ray Boucher. I work for MUFON. I'm a UFO researcher, blah, blah, blah. And he basically lays, <coughs> lays out the following scenario to Colonel Holt, he said that basically there'd been uh, maybe a number of landings, but there was a landing that involved a number of security policemen uh, surrounding an object that was on the ground, a landed object, uh, that it was being filmed on motion picture cameras, as in moving footage, as in video stroke cine film, uh, and that the base commander, Gordon Williams, of the guy responsible for the <coughs> twin bases, was there, was present at this scene. And uh, when he laid out all those circumstances, bear in mind, Holt is still in the Air Force, and probably the first time, other than Dot Street and Brenda Butler, uh, that, he, that he'd had any kind of communication with anybody about the case. He says this. He says, I can verify all of that. Yes, I can verify all of that for the Senator. So he laid it all out there, and the thing that made it absolutely crystal clear is that um, Ray Boucher wrote it down verbatim, his response. And basically it started and said verbatim. So this is a direct question where he's laid out the scenario, asked him that question and asked for his opinion and he said, yeah, I can verify all of that basically for the Senator, as in Senator James Ecton. Now that was an admission that was made in 1985. Right? And when I read that, as a former detective, it, and the fact that it had been written down verbatim, I went, what? Uh, you know, it literally leapt off the page, because Holt has always denied, and denied it to me for many years during our seven-year collaboration, that 
Colonel Williams was there, that it was being filmed, that there'd been any set in London. And here he was in 1985, while he was still serving in the Air Force, so before he became this public personality linked to this very famous case, there he was, still serving, saying to a MUFON investigator, yes, I can verify all of that. And let's, you know, for the sceptics out there, I'll say, well, no, he's misinterpreted what Boucher had said. No, he didn't. And the reason why he didn't was because Ray Boucher subsequently found out, after that admission, that Colonel Holt had gone to see Senator Exxon. And he, he wasn't present, nor was Scott Colburn. But what happened was, as soon as Holt was seen Exxon, James Exxon, nobody wants to talk, Exxon doesn't want to know, talk to Scott or Ray anymore. And obviously, uh, Ray is very frustrated, so he starts writing letter after letter after letter to uh, the senator's office and his aides, etc., trying to get hold of Exxon. He never speaks with Exxon again. Holt and his aides completely block him, basically. But what's important are these letters. The letters, which were part of the bundle that I got, the 345 pages, are amazing because they, they're long letters and they lay out in very specific paragraphs and a couple of the letters are actually in the book uh, at the end and they lay out exactly the circumstances that were put to Holt and the fact that Holt said, yes, Phil Williams was there, yes, it was being filmed on motion picture footage, um, that it was surrounded by a security police officer and that had been a second London. Wow! And it's absolutely not ambiguous whatsoever. That's what Holt admitted to. And yet, ever since he retired in 1991, he has said that Colonel Williams wasn't there, there wasn't a second landing, uh, and he attacked continuously Larry Warren. Now, here's the interesting thing, is I never could quite understand why he was so, uh, during my seven years of collaboration with him, I never could quite understand why he was so... Uh, anti Larry Warren. But interestingly, we now know why I think is because of a guy called Sergeant Adrian Bustinza. Adrian Bustinza was US security police officer, sergeant, and when um, I originally met Colonel Holt in 2007 and asked him if he would work with me to, on like a potential film strip, which is another story, but basically, he, when he said yes, I said, right, I'm going to go away, research things. This is 2007. And when I come back, I'm going to start asking you questions. And, you know, I just replied. And he said, yeah, fair enough. Well, one of the things that I said was, um, who were the people that were with you in your small group that went out in the forest on your night? And he'd go, well, there was obviously me, there was Munro Neville's, the disaster preparedness, there was Robert Ball, and there was Lieutenant England, and, uh, uh, and it kind of went silent then. And yet the audio is very specific. It's, it's Sergeant Adrian Bustinza. And I said, it's Sergeant Adrian, oh yes, yeah, yeah. And it's like, he didn't want to admit that Bustinza was with him. Now the question is, it all rankled me, why? Well, the real answer is now because Adrian Bustinza was a very reluctant witness. Uh, he'd, he'd gone on uh, twice onto uh, 
the Phenomena Radio Show with John Burroughs in later years, but had never really given a proper statement. He'd given some social media comments over the years to various people, and and in, and in the chat, there's a chapter devoted to Sergeant Adrian Bastinza in the book, and it's the longest chapter, and it's because of his, I think, unique role, because I see him as the link person to this second landing. Now, hmm. Adrian Bastinza had first given an interview uh, to Larry Fawcett in 1984. It's one of the first incidents. Larry Fawcett, who with Barry Greenwood, uh, wrote the book Clear Intent, a very good book, with a chapter on Renfrew. It was the first time there was a devoted chapter. Now, what's good about this is that uh, when we get into this story of, of, of whether there was a second landing, the second landing scenario had been put forward by Larry Warren. Uh, but he had been public on his own for eight years until the likes of uh, Colonel Holt retired, in 1991. I think we're coming up to a break. Do you want me to suspend it there? Uh, yeah. Yes, we'll take our uh, three quarters. All right, and I'll tell you what happened. Break. It's fascinating. Yes, and then, then we'll, be, we'll be back. A little bit of you're a listen- Yeah, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our old friend Gary Hesseltine in just a minute. Hey, it's ON Radio's Cruz and Bruce Palmer inviting you to join me for the Saturday Block Party. It's every Saturday from 4 until 7 p.m. when we fill the airwaves with the songs you want to hear. It's a party in every sense of the word, so join me live on 99.5 and 1240 a.m. Or bring the show with you wherever you go at onworldwide.com. You can depend on us for public service, ON Radio. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on AM and FM WON Radio. And we did, I guess, uh, cut to the commercial uh, just in time for the soccer shot. Everybody has to wait. So, Gary, uh, please don't leave us hanging. Uh, Keep the narrative going. Right. Well, so here we go. So, Holt has been reluctant to talk about Adrian Bustenza. And I think the reason why is clear now is because when I eventually... uh, spoke with Adrian Bustinzer and I tried for several years to get hold of him and never, never responded he was a very reluctant what he was involved in, what he saw the way he was treated, which I'll come on to had left, you know, left very traumatised he didn't really want to do any kind of publicity but I ended up eventually making contact and I had a, a four and a half hour transatlantic phone call with him and uh, I kind of set him up and said, look, I'm an advanced interviewer. I was an advanced police interviewer. I want to try a technique on you. And, and, and it's not hypnosis. You can't do it transatlantic. But I want you to try to concentrate. Uh, and I'm not going to interrupt you and whatever. Cutting a long story short, it was a sensational interview, four and a half hours. And when it comes to uh, talking about this age-old question of whether Larry Warren was there, he went, later on in the interview, he went, yeah, Larry Wong was there. In fact, he was closer to the craft than I was, basically. And uh, so he's about 20 feet away from it, and Larry Warren's about 10 feet away from his craft. And he said, I don't know why they chose Larry Warren to go closer to it. But anyway, so I, I'm going, what? So you are saying that Larry Warren is there in this cordon around this craft? Yes. And he's closer to it than you? Yes. Basically like that. So it, he was corroborating something that had been, in a sense, almost... 
vilified and debated for so many years, especially in recent yes. years, when there been so much vitriol. And here we have this sergeant saying, yeah, he's there, he's with me, blah, blah, blah. Now, the interesting thing about that, he's, he was corroborating that there was a translucent type of craft there, that it was surrounded by security police officers, that it was being filmed, he said all this, and that Colonel Williams was there, the base commander, and he said Colonel Holt was there. Hmm, interesting. Now, I'm not saying it. This is a military witness saying it. And perhaps that's the reason why Colonel Holt didn't really want to mention Sergeant Adrian Bastinza because he knew that he would say, if he went was ever really interviewed properly, like I did with him, if he ever said that, it was going to put Holt in a difficult position. And because Holt was totally denied for all these years, when he retired from 1991, that there was anything to do with aliens, anything to do with the second landing, that Colonel Williams, of course he wasn't there, blah, blah, blah. But when you marry that up now with the information and admission that Ray Boucher from Mufon got in 1985, and then this new uh, witness testimony from Adrian Bastinza that's very specific, but there is a twist. When Adrian Bastinza talks about this incident of a second landing, he says, that was another night. And I go, what? He goes, this wasn't the Holt night. This was another night. I said, let me be clear then. You're saying that you are involved in another night of UFO activity. He goes, yes. And he th he's not sure whether it's the, same, uh, the next night. There might be a break, a couple of nights. But essentially what he's saying is that, <laughs> that he is involved in another night of UFO activity. And on that other night of UFO activity, UFO activity that he is involved in that's when this second landing occurs and, and if you think about it that's why it may have caused so much confusion because people are always trying to marry uh, Adrian Bustinza's comments that he may be put out socially over the years and John Bowers will go so well I don't remember that well he wouldn't if he's not involved in this other night and you know, John Burroughs would say, well, I can't remember Larry Warren being involved in on the whole night. Well, it turned out it wasn't the whole night, according to Adrian Bastinza. Now, what we, what the, what I don't think we can ever nearly do now, for nearly 43 years down the line, is I don't think we can ever really firm up on memories to the point where you can say, yes, that definitely happened on that day at such and such a time. That time has gone. Too many years have elapsed, not enough investigation done early on. Memories naturally fade. But what we can be fairly certain on is people's memories. And when he was really concentrating, he he, he you know he really got into it. And what I would say is in that four and a half hours interview, that second night landing uh, actually only played a small part of what he'd said, because for the first three and a half hours, and the first two hours or so, he spoke uninterrupted. Now, that's not how human language goes. But I'd set him up that way to say, look, when you're ready, I want you to concentrate and just do it as much as you can remember in whatever you order you want to do, and I'm going to hand over the interview to you. And he was really concentrating clearly. Uh, and I just let him go. Now, ordinarily, people, in, in terms of interviewing skills, it's I speak, you speak. And that's the natural order of things. You say something, I say something in response. But when 
you're doing this kind of advanced interview, which is called the Enhanced Cognitive Model. Basically, that first interview, that first part of the interview, you don't want to interrupt his train or his or her train of thought because it's like walking on fresh snow. That was how it was described to me. They're relaying things. And you don't. If you come in with an interruption, it can suddenly destroy all that memory track they were on. So basically, you set them going, and off he went. And he, the, basically, the first two hours, he spoke non-stop. So you, in a sense, he was reliving the incident and bringing it all out, and it's one of the most powerful interviews, if not the most powerful interview I've ever done in my life, because it was so emotive. And what I'm saying about this is, he talks about the fact that when he was what was called the NCOIC, which meant he was a mobile person who could be, go, go, go get more lightals, go there, go there. He was like the gopher. He could be sent everywhere. Uh, and that was, he had a, like a roving commission to do anything that he was ordered to do, go around the different bases, get me this, get me that. And that was called the NCOIC. And he was that on the whole night. And what he'd basically say is that he would keep going back to the forest with more lightals or something else, and he'd keep going forwards and back. So every time he got to the forest, if something new happened, it's kind of like a new incident. Well, like I said, we can't be certain now all these years later on to times and precise dates. But what he says was that was entirely new is he said that whilst Colonel Holt and uh, other people were close to the staging area, he was then sent out in a line of 20 other officers, say he's one of 20, in a line, you know, like uh, if you do a forensic search for police and imagine a, 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 a clear grass field and they're looking for a murder weapon or something like that on the ground, they line up in a straight line and then they all go forward together and they're looking intently down at the ground looking to see if they can recover something. Well, essentially, that's what he did. Well, show me anywhere in the history of Rendlesham whenever anybody's ever talked about a 20 line, 20 person line search in the forest going forward like in a sweep. And that's how he described it. So this, he's describing an incident that nobody's ever mentioned before, which was fascinating. And well, here's uh, the Gary, thing. can I interrupt, uh, before we what? burn up the hour, uh, please, uh, tell us where people can get the book. It's non-human, the rentals of forest incidents, 42 years of denial. There it is. Well, we there can't it get it that way. Uh, where can no, no, it's, on, it's only available on Amazon at the moment. Okay. Uh, it'll ship within 48 hours. It's 500 pages, uh, and it's it's the full facts about Rendlesham from a, a detective's point of view. Uh, and I just lay it all out there. I, I take sentiment out of it, and I just lay out the facts, but I make reasoned evaluations, and I, uh, and I um, draw some conclusions at the end. We have, a question. we have a question from a listener here. You got that in the Tatlux band, that's our yes. friend Peter Shelley from Bogota, Colombia. Indeed, our Bogota connection writes to us. Gary, have you looked into the possibility that, Ren- that the Rendlesham case could have been some type of psyops, uh, perhaps a test by the government to see if the security personnel uh, could be manipulated into diverting from the base and exposing the base to an enemy com, uh, commando raid, perhaps. 
Uh, in support of this, I offer the strange detail that you have pointed out yourself of the security personnel being made to hand over their weapons before going into the forest. Uh, this suggests to me that it was pre-planned. Uh, there are there are some elements of pre-planning, but maybe not for the reasons that you speculate. In, in answer to your question, I addressed that in the book, and several people have speculated that it was a sale. The trouble is that not all weapons were handed in. Uh, Colonel Holt told me that uh, Lieutenant England carried like a little rocket launcher under his coat and was out in the forest. Other people, uh, for example, Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin, which is a story we've not to part talked about yet and is one of the biggest cover-ups is that she was the officer on the second night uh, driving on a rural public road between the twin bases uh, and in between was the forest well she's on this British UK public road when she is chased off the road by a sphere that's travelling alongside of her at like hedgerow height she is so distressed by this sphere blowing ball that she loses control of the vehicle, she rolls the military vehicle into a ditch on a public road. She climbs out and the UFO stops and hovered her above her. So she gets the weapon and she starts shooting at it. Well, that's a sensational new case. A, a, a female officer, a lieutenant, discharging a weapon at a UFO. And have you heard about it? No, because it was all covered up by the US Air Force. We yeah, know we about it. We never heard now. that. No, that's... Oh. Right, wow. so that's a pretty good story, that, isn't it? And yeah, that very much so. That comes from Michael Stacey Smith, who was an airman. Now, what he's, what we knew prior to is, we knew that uh, a female uh, called Laurie Bowen had been at the East Gate and first reported on the night that this happens to Lieutenant Monty Tamplin that something like a glowing red ball of fire had dropped into Reynolds and Forest. So she reports it on the telephone that's located at the East Gate. And the first person who happens to respond is Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin, who just happens to have left RAF Bentwaters en route on the back road, public road, towards the back gate of RAF Woodbridge. Well, obviously, this is when this incident occurs. We know about it because Michael Stacey Smith basically says that he was suddenly dispatched to go to what was called the back gate of RAF uh, Bentwaters, which was called the Butler Gate, and it led onto a little public road. And he was sent there, didn't know why, but it was all of kind of a quick rush, get out there, open up the Butler Gate, the back gate at Bentwaters. He got there, he opened up, and then he saw a convoy of security police vehicles heading out at speed. Something was clearly happening or had happened, and then a few minutes later, he's still at the back gate when uh, Lieutenant uh, uh, England, uh, Lieutenant uh, Tamplin, is brought back as a front seat passenger. The vehicle is, the military vehicle is driven by Sergeant Robert Ball, called Bobby Ball, and she is in the front seat passenger. She's not wearing a, be uh, a berry. She's dis her clothing is dishevelled. She's absolutely shaking like a leaf. Something really traumatic had happened. So he doesn't speak to her, but she he sees her. So he's a direct witness testimony to part of this story. She goes in onto the bed. And then a few minutes later, uh, the vehicle that she'd been driving, Lieutenant Tamplin had been driving, is clearly still drivable because another security police officer drives it back to the Butler Gate and he sees her vehicle has sustained uh, damage uh, consistent with having rolled the vehicle onto part of the, the roof. And it's crumpled, but you can still drive it. He then 
he closes up the gate and he then speaks to one of his friends who is a sergeant and the sergeant says if you never if you promise never to divulge my name to anyone I'll tell you what 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 her story was and he said yeah I promise and he he kept that to his word he never told me who this person was but I have absolutely no reason to disbelieve Michael Stacey Smith I am Michael Stacey Smith and he said that she'd been on the public road been ran off the road affected by this glowing object that she'd uh, climbed out of the, the the vehicle that had rolled in the ditch. The UFO was hovering, a, a, a spherical object, uh, very similar to has been described by many of the airmen involved in this, uh, like a beach ball-sized object, maybe bigger than this, maybe the size of a car, hovering close to her. She was so frightened, she then took a weapon, which we think was an M16, but might not be, but A, she had a firearm, put it that way, and she discharged the weapon. And the sergeant told Michael Stacey Smith that the 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 rounds that she had discharged had been uh, uh, put back into the armoury and it was all covered up. Her weapon was recovered, cleaned and put back into the armoury, all covered up. So this incredible story that we've only emerged through this book has emerged now, 42 years later. So by hook or by crook, the US Air Force covered up this major incident on a major... On, on a public road in the UK and they've got away with it for all these years and there we are we now finally know what happened to Bonnie Tamplin uh, we know that Bonnie Tamplin now was so traumatised that within days after this incident she was then being flown back to the United States and as far as we were aware she never went back to work again uh, and we, I now know that she's living in Europe I know which country she's in but I've tried to contact her through relatives but clearly no response and she clearly doesn't want to talk about it I kind of hope that after all these years um, somebody might tell her that there's this book out now and that it contains a lot more um, military witness information, more witnesses have have spoken to me and that she might want to go on the record to exercise a ghost as much as anything else but I can well understand it if she doesn't but that's a sensational story that's been covered up and so that, so when we talk about the question, instead of, is it a psyop? Well, that doesn't sound like a psyop to me. Uh, right. and, 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 and the book's <clears throat> conclusions are that the 17 different incidents over that late December Christmas period, 17 different timed incidents, i.e. where there's a significant break between them, over three, what we now believe is four consecutive days, now, let me give you something else that's really interesting that doesn't make it sound like it's a psyop. Now, on the 23rd of December, 23rd of December, according to the military witness, there is a report that something else had happened at the East Gate. Now, this is just a couple of days prior to Christmas, so this, again, is totally unknown. Other than this book, never been reported as such. Uh, and I spoke with this witness, and he basically said, He'd had a previous uh, UFO encounter himself in what was called, uh, in I think it was the November period of 1980, so just before. And when he'd reported what he saw, he was basically given the hard word is, do not say anything about this, and he was given a lot of grief for, for mentioning it to the, to the senior officers. And so he thought, well, if ever I see anything else, I am not going to tell anyone else because I don't want any more grief but so anyway on this uh, what he thinks is the uh, December the 23rd the night of the 23rd 
he is called to an inter- he's told to go to the east gate and speak to an airman we think it's a spirit policeman not quite why there is somebody at the east gate on the 23rd of december we're not sure because it's not routinely it wasn't routinely man unless it was on an exercise or some kind of an alert there may be a story behind that but anyway he then goes and speaks with the security police officer who says that he'd seen something land as in a ufo or some kind of light and descended vertically down into the drop down into the forest akin to basically what laurie bowen had seen uh, a couple of nights later on the 25th uh, 26th into the 27th uh, and so anyway the, the airman is very upset doesn't want to go himself so um the two airmen who've responded to this incident they go and look in this uh clump of trees forest that was closer to the east gate than it is now the trees are not the same now because after 1997 90% of the trees were all knocked down in what was akin to a british hurricane it demolished most of the forest so the trees aren't the same anymore and the clump of trees that this happened is not there anymore but he says that this clump of trees is no more than 150 meters to 200 meters from the east gate well that's not what jim and john saw this is a, a much closer to the east gate so again new information and yeah. he says that when when he went to the inside they found a small clearing and they found triangular indentations a perfect triangle as akin to John and Jim's uh, indentation. I hate to have to stop you, Gary, but we're out yeah. of time. We're going to have to have you back and uh, the book again. Oh, folks. come on. I thought this was two hours. No. Was- oh, no, no. It's all, it's one hour. Um, oh, I thought this was two hours. Oh, I'm so sorry, but we'll have you back real soon. We'll uh, stay on so the edge of our seats and we'll continue. But thank you so much. Uh, ben, I think we probably better get started with what's for next week. Sure thing. Well, I mean, we have a wee bit of time um, to tell you a little bit about, uh, about our show website, what we have coming up. So you can look for us at the Exeter UFO Festival in September and for my dad at the Arizona Dowsers Conference in October. And don't forget to check out our show website, www.behindtheparanormal.com. Um you can find over nearly 1,200 hours of shows, of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WOON, AM, and FM Radio. And you can also hear many of these broadcasts on major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. Uh, don't forget to download our show app. It's free at BehindTheParanormal.com, and uh, you can browse our books along with those of our special guest co-hosts, our show website, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, and our public appearances. And so we'll tell you what's going on next week. So making his debut on the show next week will be author and experiencer Daniel Harari. 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 Look at that. Who will share what he thinks uh, will happen after aliens arrive. Well, we leave you, if they haven't already, uh, we leave you today with a thought from none other than the dear old Socrates. Wonder is the beginning of wisdom. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.